Judgment. Advent is, is not Christmas. It's the season of impending judgment. And every year it begins with rather harsh texts, warnings. Wake up. Watch out. You don't know what's coming, but you know Jesus is coming, or, or do you? And you know that he's not coming as a, a small infant to be born quietly in the backwoods, but he's coming as the righteous king with angel armies and a sword of fire coming out of his mouth to slay the wicked. Judgment. The text we heard a moment ago from the gospel about the triumphal entry. After Jesus is sung of, Hosanna, Hosanna by the people. And the Pharisees say, be quiet. And he says, even the rocks will sing if they're quiet. What does he do next? He goes into the temple, makes a whip, and begins the judgment. He comes out on the next day and he curses a fig tree. He curses the symbol of Israel because it's fruitless. It has no faith. And that tree withers and dies. And that week he will say that this temple is going to be torn down. And yes, he means his body, which then is torn down. And of course, you know, he is risen. Alleluia. And yet within that generation, the very building itself was also torn down. As his judgment upon a people who did not believe in him, though they honored him with their lips. This is the same scenario that's taking place in the reign of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the reign of his son, Jotham, king of Judah. That for all of their reforms, all of their attempts to make Judah a faithful nation, uh, the influences of the northern kingdom of Israel, of the house of Ahab and Jezebel, and all those various idols that they worship, the Asherah, the Baals, the high places, on and on, this is still what the people cling to. So they come to the temple, but then they go out and they worship the false gods elsewhere. And Isaiah begins to preach then, called by God as he was, seeing him high and lifted up against this people, even though he knows that many of them will not listen to him, he begins to preach judgment, not just on the nations. And he he does that too. There's something against Tyre, and there's something against Persia, and there's something against Babylon. He preaches against the whole world. But he preaches also against Judah and Jerusalem. And he makes it clear that there is no avoiding the fact that God is going to judge that city and that nation by taking them into captivity, by ending the covenant that he had with them and putting them far away from his sight, removing his name from that place. All of this preaching of judgment is right. It's just. It's good. Judgment is when the evil get what they deserve. And any good person or good angel is going to say, that's right. So it should be. Alleluia. Bring the judgment. The trick for we poor sinners, of course, is that we know deep down within that we're not as good as we like to think we are. And so if God's going to measure everything exactly as it ought to be measured, we're going to find ourselves in a bit of an uneven equation where we're getting paid back for what we've done and for what we've left undone. Now, the good part of the story, of course, is that Jesus Christ has paid that cost for us. He paid that cost for the Israelites of old as well, uh, or he was coming to do so. And the the promise of that reality went back to them. It it covered them. The, The blood that was shed by the bulls and the goats of the temple did not itself satisfy God's wrath, but because it pointed to Christ, 
it satisfied God's wrath for them too. And so there are brothers and sisters. They were truly worshiping the way we are truly worshiping. And here is God saying to them, why have you forgotten? And since you've forgotten, I'm going to remove your lampstand from you. I'm going to take away the lights. And then maybe, maybe you'll repent. In fact, when you get to Babylon, you will. Now, the result of this, and we'll look at this a little bit more again in the coming weeks, is that King Hezekiah, who will follow King Ahaz, Ahaz doesn't listen, but King Hezekiah will repent. And the people will repent with him. Now, by that point, the armies of Assyria have taken all of Judah and are surrounding Jerusalem, and they're the only holdout. Nonetheless, the king repents, and he goes into the temple, and he prays to God, I can't save this country, you save this country. And what happens? Well, God sends an angel army. And they drive the host of Assyria away, and the whole empire of Assyria collapses, and Hezekiah is able to reign until a pretty good old age. But God has already said that this is just a temporary relief. The judgment is still coming. Now, there's a lot we can do with this typologically, how we would apply it to our times. Uh, but the best way to do this is to see that the final day of judgment is coming upon the earth. And that God intends to save many humans from that final day. But that day is coming no matter what. And however much we may repent and then believe, that's good. But it doesn't mean the world's going to repent and believe with us. And one time or another, God's going to bring his fire upon the world. Now, this will happen finally and lastly on that great day. But leading up to that great day, we are going to have times and seasons in which he does that to nations and various places. I'll let you do what you want with that in your own head as you imagine the times and the places we live. Just know there's going to be a rise and there's going to be a fall. And the falls are going to come when God gets sick and tired of putting up with the wickedness of man and the pride of man. It's bad enough that man might do such things as steal from the poor and oppress the widow. What happens when he begins sacrificing his children to his gods? What happens when he begins pretending that man and woman no longer exist and doing things that are shameful even to speak of? What happens when he has to bring upon the, the country and the place in which you live a judgment against their speaking out against his name? When Assyria stands outside Jerusalem and is about to attack before they are destroyed, after Hezekiah, before Hezekiah prays, everything that they say seems pretty good. There's a guy named Rabshakeh, and he says things like, I was sent by God to do this to you. And no one's been able to stop us from doing this kind of thing. None of that's really the problem. The problem is when he says, even Jesus, even the Lord can't stop us. Even God can't stop us. That's when God sends his angel armies. So yeah, I think I can. And again, so what happens when you live in a time and a place where that's the kind of lifted up haughtiness of the average human being? Yeah. Now, again... Isaiah's text in chapter 3 is very much written to that kind of place. And so it has a lot to say, I think, to us. Not only that we might hear, repent, believe, but also that we might know what it means to be the righteous. To be those who trust in God in the midst of wickedness. Because it wasn't as though there were no righteous people, no faithful people in Judah and Jerusalem. There were. They were just the minority. Yeah. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 3 begins on page three, 568 of your pew Bible. If you can find it there, that would be great. 
It's going to go on to page 569. We're going to look at the text that we heard read a moment ago, and then we're going to jump into chapter 4. Why chapter 3 and 4 at the same time? Well, if you get there in your pew Bible, you'll see that chapter 4 is awful short. It's quite tiny. So so we're going to squeeze that on at the end. And perhaps you remember from last week that Isaiah 2 through 4 is a section, and it's a little bit of a sandwich. And as a sandwich, the bread on the sandwich is some good news. That's the front and the back. And in the middle, again, you have, you have the bad news. You have the judgment. You have the fact that God is, is going to bring balance to everything that has been done, and the wicked is going to get what it deserves. But on either side of this, again, is the promise that those who trust in God to save them are going to be saved. And that's why we really do want to look at, at chapter 4, a little touch here. There's also some good news in chapter 3, just verse 10, which we'll get there in a moment. I want to start, though, with one verse we didn't have read before, which is verse 9. It says this, For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. He's speaking to the people of Jerusalem, right? The southern kingdom. He's speaking to them because they are not ashamed anymore. The issue isn't just that there's a thing called sin. I mean, that's a big deal. That that we are corrupted by our inheritance from Adam. That our spirits are selfish all through and through. That we really don't look out for the good of others unless it benefits us. That's all a problem. But the bigger problem is when we say that's good. I have no need to be ashamed of the evil I do. In fact, the evil I do is good. And he uses the example of Sodom here. I know you know the general story of how fire came out of heaven and Lot escaped and his wife with the salt and all this kind of stuff. But do you remember like what was the height of the problem? That you have two men who go to visit this city and Lot says, don't sleep in the open square. It's a little dangerous here. And he takes them into his house, and then all the men of the city surround the house, and they say, let those men come out so that we might rape them. If you don't, then we're going to rape all of you. They're proud of their sin. And I don't think it's an irony that when some these days want to be proud of their sin, they celebrate pride. That's what they call it. They have pride parades. And they go around and they boast about their wickedness. Have you ever seen the pictures of those or the drag shows they do in the libraries for the little kids? That's what it's talking about here. They're not ashamed. And they have brought evil on themselves. Have you heard me say before that the punishment for sin is usually the sin? I mean, there are things that you can do that will blow back on you. If you shoot a man, the police are going to arrest you. You end up in jail. Yeah, that's punishment for sin too. But the punishment for coveting is coveting. The punishment for lewdness is lewdness. It's what it does to you. Not the results with others. Yeah. And so indeed, here, they bring evil on themselves by not hiding their sin. If you want to take this and apply it to your own heart, just just see it this way. They're not ashamed. And there's a certain point in which you want to say, I am ashamed. I I don't want you as a Christian to live in shame. I don't want you to walk around going, whoa, poor me, I'm so bad. Don't do that. But when you see things that are wrong, feel bad about it. When you do things that are wrong, feel bad about it. Don't pretend it's good. Because that's, again, the sign that the end is is very near. 
All right, so then verse 10 says, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. Okay, St. Paul Lutheran Church, you're all baptized Christians. It's going to be well with you. There we go, I did it. Yeah. You trust in Jesus. You know his name. He is risen. Alleluia. So know that you're in the ark going through the flood. Yeah. No matter what comes upon this earth, even should you die, yet you will live. And it, there is no promise that you're going to die an early death or end up in squalor or any such thing like that. Rather, God sends the rain and the sun upon all of us. And he tells us that when we live in Babylon, when we live in the city of wickedness, build houses, give your kids in marriage, enjoy life as best you can as good people, praying for your city, because in the good of the city, so will be your good. Tell the righteous it will be good with them. God has a plan. When he brings judgment on the wicked, it is so that the righteous might thrive. And so if the place you live has become so wicked that you can't thrive anymore, if they make laws against being good, have you seen what they're going to teach the kids in sex ed this coming year? When they make laws against being good, know that God's going to crush it so that you can continue to be good. Don't back off of what you believe. Cling to it the more tightly. You will be the remnant. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Now, this isn't about justification by works at the last day. This is about do good now, because good will result from it when you do it. Good things are good. Yeah. To the wicked, though, verse 11, woe to them. Woe to the wicked. Is it any wonder uh, that the change, I don't know if you've seen any of this stuff, I don't want to get into the details, the change in the sex education curriculum that they're going to be giving in the public schools this coming year, being pressed by a certain governor of a certain state, is it any wonder that it promotes the kind of upside down backwardsness about man and woman that his own near relatives have embraced? Is it any wonder that those who are near him who say a man is not a man and a woman is not a woman have influenced him to do this? Huh. Woe to the wicked. Woe to the wicked. You can put two and two together. It shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Yeah. God doesn't let anything get by. If you're a Christian, you're going to be saved on the last day. If you're not a Christian right now, punishment begins. And it comes as the fruit of your hands. And it's going to lead up to a great pile someday, which will blow back on you. Now, what's going on in Jerusalem then is lifted up here. that the, In Jerusalem, wicked are ruling the leaders who ought to be the leaders of the church. There's, there's no difference in Jerusalem between the church and the state right? I am not an officer of the state or just the church here. So you do have to hear some of this as if it's talking about pastors, even though it's going to talk about princes. Yeah. It's talking about those who ought to be teaching you what is good and what is evil. Now, again, princes should really teach that to us today. Yeah. But he says, verse 12, my people, infants are their oppressors and ru women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Now, the second half of that verse is easier to understand than the first. Now, your guides mislead you, right? So to know that, well, there, there are times and places where those who say, God says this, say something he didn't say. 
and then they swallow up you by that deception. You believe that person. You, oh, God said that. Okay, I'll go do this. But, but if it's a lie, it's a lie. So if I were a priest in Jerusalem saying, yeah, sure, no problem. Worship at the high places. Well, then you go worship at the high places and guess what? You're guilty too, even though you believe the lie. Hence, oh, my people, don't you see how bad it is for you? Now, the same idea in the first half of the verse that infants are their oppressors, women rule over them. Now, this is pretty, pretty deep. I don't want to spend too much time unpacking it, but uh, the idea is that the kings themselves, the governors themselves, they're childish in their thinking. They're infantile. They, they can't see. They're think what an infant is. We like to think of infants as like these innocent little cushy squish balls. Right? They're not. They're selfish little bags of flesh. All they do is what they want. That's all they do. They never think about you except when they want something. Right? That's what an infant is. And so when you have adult leaders that act that way, well, again, infants rule over them. You also do have a time in Judah's history where young men are coming to the throne. I know we have a history right now, last 50 years or so, only old men come to the throne. But I don't know if that's all bad. You put a 20-year-old in charge and interesting things happen. Yeah? So that's part of it here. It's a curse. Now, here's the hard part. Women rule over you. That, that's a curse too. That means that they didn't know what a man and a woman really were, what their place was with each other, and how when the men lead, it's good for us. And when the women lead, it means the men are cowards. It's a curse. And he's cursing them and saying, woe to you because of this. So then, verse 13, the Lord has taken his place to contend. See, that is the judgment itself. When the women are ruling over the men, that's the judgment itself already. It's in place. And now he will contend with you and he will judge the people. So Isaiah is going to talk about other nations here uh, in a while and, and what's going to come upon them. So it's the whole earth that's underneath God's thumb here a little bit. Uh, verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. So it's the whole earth, but it's actually his own people as well. And so he's going to come and deal with those leaders who are infantile in their thinking, those pastors and teachers and elders of the church who don't believe the Bible is true. I haven't really harped on this for a while, and maybe harping is the wrong word. You know, I've recently come to the conclusion that Christians in America— really need to bind together, not in communion fellowship. If we disagree about certain things, we shouldn't commune together. I very much believe in closed communion. But when it comes to things like the walk for life, when it comes to things like standing up for marriage in the public square, we got to realize who our friends are. And it's not just the LCMS that stands up for this. In fact, a lot of the times the LCMS is hiding in the corner, you know, worried about its future. So I don't want to like bash American Christianity harder than it needs. And yet at the same time, I mean, we really need to bash American Christianity. It's self-righteous. It's egotistic. It's greedy. Everything's about growth. Everything's about having more. Everything's about how big and cool and special you can look and be. Very little of it is about how much do we know our Bibles? How much do we trust in what the scriptures say? How much do we believe in being a people of grace? Are we willing to suffer rather than give up what we believe? The Lord contends in judgment against his people. And one thing you have seen in American churches over the last 50 years is a steep decline in the number of people who go. I know you know this. 
I know you experienced it, many of you at St. Paul. We, we seem to be in a, a season of mild growth instead of collapse, which is nice. But again, you've experienced this and it isn't like you were special. Many, many churches have gone through this. And what is most fascinating to me as a pastor growing up in this and then watching this is how often the church says, well, we'll fix it. We'll do something about it. We'll, we'll change something. We'll make it right. The young people these days, they need this and that. That'll get them to come in. The last thing we do, the thing we don't do is we say, hmm, maybe we need to repent. Maybe we don't even believe anymore. I, uh, I don't want to talk out of school, but I heard a story from a, a local pastor, not Rockford, Illinois, though. Illinois local pastor, new guy, young guy, good guy. Some of the ladies in his church took him aside, gave him a little talking to. He's in his second year. A little talking to, Pastor. Pastor, you got to start talking about this. Stop talking about this sin thing. We're not sinners. Whoa. Yes, you are. It's what the Bible says. No, we're not. We're good people. And we've been blessed. You see how good this church is? How beautiful it is? We've been blessed. Again, now, the, the judgment's coming. This is my point, right? The judgment is coming upon American churches more than it's coming upon America. And that judgment is based upon the fact that American churches have forgotten their way. Why are we not leading the nation? Why are we not having people flock to our places? Because we're not even sure who we are. And the moment someone says, I don't like this, we go, oh, maybe we should change it. Who's going to join that religion? Nobody. And meanwhile, Islam holds its line. It does exactly what it says it's going to do. They can even make the World Cup bow down to it. Quite impressive, really, if you think about it. All right, so again, the Lord is going to enter into judgment with the people. Why? Verse 14, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. The vineyard we're going to get to next week. That's chapter 5, the song of the vineyard. This does mean the church. It means the nation of Israel. It is the picture of God's people on earth. And what he's saying is that the leaders of God's people on earth have devoured them. And they've taken the poor and the needy among them, and they've made what they have into their own things. They've stolen. But you can also see this then applied to any type of leadership. You could be a father, could be a mayor, could be a president, who sees his role as king as being, get stuff for me. As opposed to his role as king being help the weak, lift up the needy, speak up for the poor. And God's saying that they weren't doing that in Jerusalem. They were just seeking for themselves at this point. Verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now, I can't hear that myself right now without thinking about the state of the American economy and the new levels of taxation that's being put upon, say, Britain in the face of their own collapsing economy and things like that. And think about how our leaders, most of them, don't seem to care about those of us who are watching things cost more and more every month. But that's not really what it's about either. I mean, it is It's about if you're in that position and you're a Christian, care about those who are weak. But most, this is about the church again. This is about the least of these in our midst. It's not about going and helping the poor on the street. It's about seeing the poor spirit beside you. And the poor spirit beside you is not the one who doesn't have a nice coat. It's the one who does not know the scriptures. 
who doesn't see that having knowledge of the wisdom of God, being able to speak the words of God out of your own mouth in your life is great wealth. And so again, for the pastor who doesn't believe that that's important for his people and is happy to sit up here and pat you on the head and say, Jesus loves you, go back to the life of wickedness. uh, That's a a condemnation right there. That's really what this is about. So, you know, Lord, have mercy on my soul. For indeed, I have too often thought only of my own belly as a pastor. I know that as well as I hope any faithful pastor would. But what I want then for all of us this morning to see in this is if we're going to care about the poor and needy in our midst, that means we're going to care about believing what we actually believe in such a way that we're ready to speak it. And that will impact our city. That will impact how we think about the poor on the street. It's not like that's completely disconnected. It's there. But it comes from the center, right? Which is that the life of the church is the life in which the wealth is the word of God in your heart. Hmm? All right. So verse 16, uh, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Uh, The big idea here is the image of a woman who is haughty. She's proud. She thinks only of how she looks. She thinks only of how she can get the attention of everyone. And God says, because you're all like that, I'm going to make you into a a bit of a, uh, an unway, how do I I say it? Uh, uh, Disgusting to look at woman. Okay, so just focus in on that, the scab idea. Your hair is going to fall out and you're going to have scabs all over your head. So imagine the most beautiful woman you can picture and then that happens to her. And how does that go for her? How does she feel? The idea is that God's going to take their haughtiness. He's going to turn it upside down and bring down judgment on it. Now, specifically at the time where the women in Jerusalem were lording it over the men, were ruling it over the men, they were indeed very haughty in their wealth and in their sexuality. And there's more in chapter 3 that gets into this. We're not going to go into those details today, but if you read the chapter on your own later or later at the late service, we will go through those details. He is very much bringing down upon them a judgment for their heightened view of their own sexuality, which again... If there's anything that we're proud of as Americans publicly these days, uh, that's kind of what it is. All right, but let's close with some good news here. Uh, Zoom down to chapter 4. We're not going to start at verse 1. That really belongs with chapter 3. It's the final part of the condemnation. But verse 2 says this. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Zoom in on survivors, the remnant, the righteous. Tell the righteous it shall be well with them. The righteous shall survive through God's grace. And because this branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. That idea of the branch is not done. It's going to show up several times throughout the work of Isaiah. And you just need to know right off, the branch of the Lord is Jesus. This is the shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse, right? This is the new blossom and new uh, fruit-bearing branch that will take the tree that was cut down and make it grow to be so great and big that all the birds of the air and all the beasts in the field can live under its shade. Uh, This is Jesus the King, 
coming from the line of David. He will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land, that'll be the faith which he engenders in you, right? Here we are, this is what's actually happening. So that he who is left in Zion, verse three, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Huh? So here that very much is about the judgment falling upon Christ on the cross, the burning wrath of God all being poured out on that day so that you who dead in your trespasses and sins have undergone the judgment of God's word telling you, repent, wake up, watch. Now do know the holiness of being set apart by God, which is to trust in his righteousness instead of your own. And your name is written in the book of life, washed with the regeneration of the holy water and name of God. Then verse five, the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke and a shining flame of fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. So this plays with the idea of the pillar of cloud and fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt and across the desert. Only instead of just being out in front of them, it is now over them as a total protection. Just just imagine that God surrounds you entirely. There's nowhere you can go where he is not there to protect you and provide you for your good. And this is not merely the future world to come. I mean, that's where we're going to feel it. Don't get me wrong. On that day when Jesus is the light and there's no more sun, you're going to feel it. But it's already true now. The judgment on the cross has already happened now. You've been called holy already now. You are brought out of the world distinct from them by your trust in Jesus now. And so God goes before you. God is behind you. He is to your right. He is to your left, leading you in the path in which you shall go safely. You, the righteous, who are called to be different and stand out because of your trust in Jesus. Now, I I mentioned that we're going to glance at uh, Romans this morning uh, when we had it read a moment before. So with just maybe two minutes here, page 948, looking at the back of Romans chapter 13, it's going to be at verse 11. And it, it really does bring everything that Isaiah 3 and 4 is saying to us in New Testament language. I've been trying to, to bridge Old Testament and New Testament language, but here's the New Testament language, page 948, Chapter 13, verse 11, second column, midway down. Besides this, you know the time. Just, just, you know what's going on. You're watching the world. You know what the time is. You know the state of the church. You know the state of America. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we believed. What does it mean, wake from sleep? I don't mean vote red or vote blue. I mean, read your Bible. Call on Jesus. Open the Psalter and believe those words are there to be the prayers that he will always answer, to form you, to strengthen you, to give you conviction and knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Wake from sleep. Stop thinking you can only put into your head noise from the world and not have it push out of your head the word of God if you're not putting the word of God into your head too. 
Wake from sleep. Commit your life. Follow the Lord who is your king. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. At the risk of going too long, I need one more minute of your time. My wife and I yesterday were on our our YouTube show and we were talking about this idea. Where did we get the idea that because I want it is a good reason for anything? You don't get that idea from the Bible. The Bible just said in that verse 14, make no provision for the flesh. That means what I want doesn't mean anything. It's what does God say that matters? What is written once and for all? What is he declared to be true forever and therefore beautiful? So wake up again. Judgment is here. It's Advent. It's the first week in Advent. It's always a little rough. But remember, you're under grace. Wake up and see the grace. And then stand. In the name of Jesus. Amen.